I like the ferociousness of the defense, don't you? Someone stands up for us. His name is Jesus Christ. And the accuser will bring the accusations against us. And they certainly did against Jesus. And so will the accuser against us. I was, um, I'm going to tell you a story out of my own life now. I was over in Chennai, India, and uh, I was speaking with some of the leaders of the Indian church from a place called Orissa. Orissa was a basically unevangelized Hindu city. And somebody had a heart for Orissa and prayed over her for about 10 years, looking for the man of peace. And so he went down into the village and found in the village somebody whose heart was open to the gospel. And then several others became believers in that village. And the plan was to spread the gospel from that city to five surrounding cities. So in a course of about 10 years, the church had spread to about 500 little towns in the region of Orissa. And they had chosen some of their best leaders to come and spend some time with me. I asked them to turn to the passage I'm going to teach from this morning, John 13. So if you have a Bible, you can open up John 13. My intention on teaching John 13 was to introduce them to a principle that Jesus taught his disciples in the upper room. Now, this is where we derive the threefold communion from, or otherwise known as the upper room worship. Jesus here would have his last supper with his disciples, and it came to be known in time as the love feast. Now, Jesus would break bread with his disciples and drink from the cup to commemorate the new covenant. So back to our men from India. I said that during the course of a dinner with his disciples, his last meal, Jesus got up from the meal and he took off his outer garment and he wrapped a towel around his waist and he knelt down and began to wash his disciples' feet one by one, drying them with the towel that was around his waist. And then I said, well, Jesus also said, if I, being your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. And then came the lunch break. And what normally happened at lunch was that they went off to have lunch, and I would study some more and prepare for them to come back. When they came back into the room about one o'clock, every member of the class had a towel over their shoulder. And I said to them, you know, what's up with the towel? Like, are you guys going swimming? And they said, no, no, you said that Jesus said that he washed the disciples' feet, and we ought to wash one another's feet. We want to do what Jesus said to do. They were inclined toward obedience. They had never heard this before. In their village, often there was just one Bible, often of the pastor, who would teach them at nighttime. These were brand new believers. But they wanted to humble themselves before one another and wash each other's feet. I found that to be an extremely moving experience, 7,000 miles from home finding believers who really wanted to obey the teachings of Jesus. In their discipleship, their hearts had become inclined to obey. Now, I won't pretend to tell you that foot washing, when you come into someone's home, is common in our culture. If you came to my house 
You know, you wouldn't be greeted by a servant. Actually, my dog Schnick would greet you. And the servant wouldn't take your sandals off. And the servant wouldn't take water and pour it into a basin and then wash your feet. We have to admit that the culture around us has changed pretty dramatically. We don't wear sandals all the time. We don't have basins of water. We don't have pitchers at our door. And we don't have servants with the humility to wash feet. Let me say that again. We don't have the servants with humility to wash feet. We put ourselves at the center and expect others to serve us. Instead of putting others first, we're glad, we're glad to be served. I think the closest we come in our own culture to a foot washing kind of thing is when we go to the beach and there's sand on our feet and we wash the sand off our feet before we get into the car or into the house because we don't attract the sand behind us. The question this morning is, what is the relationship between disciples in the body of Christ? In week number one, we talked about unity, being so precious in the sight of God that we preserve the unity of the Spirit. Last week, we talked about diversity in the body, how beautiful God has orchestrated diversity with the gifts. And this morning, we're going to talk about love in the body of Christ. So let's open together to John 13, if you're not there already. And take a look at what it says. It was just before the Passover feast. This is the day before Passover. And Jesus knew his time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Now the phrase, the time had come, was a phrase that Jesus had used before in his first miracle saying, the time has not yet come. But now the time had come. So the question is, what was it time for? Well, it was time to leave this world and go back to the Father. The Bible teaches us that when we um, are born again, we become part of the family of God, and we have a heavenly Father. I cannot tell you how many times that Jesus went to his Father in his union, communion with God. If he would say, I only do what I see my Father doing, and then at the end of his life, he said, into thy hands, Father, I commit my spirit. Jesus says, now having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. What is the love of God? Sometimes the love of God is very tender. We see, and we'll see this in a couple of weeks, that Jesus, the love of God, was carried into Jerusalem upon a donkey. Sometimes the love of God is carried to us, and we need to have a donkey watch to see how the love of God is being carried into our life. I think about the love of God being carried to a family with a home-cooked meal who's suffered a loss. I think about the love of God being carried to a college student far from home with a care package. I think about the love of God being shared with a patient by a nurse who lovingly spends time with that patient. I think about the love of God being carried to us when you know, somebody's willing to wash our car. Think of all the ways you can show love to somebody with regard to cars. I mean, you can uh, 
get all those bugs off the windshield, you know. You can uh, wash the car. You can buy parts for the car. You can work on the car. I'm telling you, we need to be on a donkey watch, seeing how the love of God is being carried into our lives. One of the children from children's ministry wrote me a note this week, and she wrote, I love you, Pastor R., and I hope you can reach those lost people and get them saved. And so if you're here, I'm trying my best. But I allowed, see, something about a child gets through our defenses. And I felt the enormous measure of God's love flowing through her. Sometimes the love of God is very fierce. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Mary had done a beautiful thing to Jesus, a lavish gift. And she was highly criticized. This could have been sold for a year's wages. And Jesus said, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing to me. She's anointed me for my burial. You see, the love of God can be very tender or very fierce. You see, having loved his own who were in this world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. There are basically two great symbols of the love of God that come from the last day of Jesus' life. The first is the basin where we are broken with humility, serve one another. The second is the cross, where we come broken to receive the love of God, the healing of our souls. What if every husband who is here showed to his wife the full extent of the love of Jesus? What if every wife were to show to her husband the full extent of the love of Jesus to her man? What if our children were taught to show their parents the extent of God's amazing love? As you know, I went through a season of recovery. And one of the things that kept touching me was members of the body, you know, writing notes to me, praying for me, my children literally coming and just ministering to me, encouraging me. God's love was getting to me. You know, real love is calling India to talk to your cell phone provider to solve the problem for your beloved's phone. Real love is coming to someone's house to help with a move, to suck up the water in the basement, to help a widow or a single mom do stuff she can't do. Real love is doing someone's taxes when (laughs) there isn't that much time left in the calendar. Real love is buying someone tires even when your own tires need some love. Real love is hanging in there with your friend who's battling with depression. And real love is sending someone a text to encourage them when you know they're under great stress. So here's the setting we find for Jesus showing to his disciples the full extent of his love. It's found in verse 2 and following. The disciples had gotten into a big argument. They were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They believed that greatness would be achieved by position. Now, in many ways, our own culture has bought into that assertion that the higher you climb, the busier you are, the more money you make, the more important you are. Those false beliefs would undermine Jesus' teaching and the kingdom. So the setting here is the upper room. Jesus sent his disciples to set up the room. Now, each of the disciples arrived 
seeing the pitcher and the, of water and the basin. But none of them took the initiative, the position of being a servant. None of them was willing to serve his brother. They believed that greatness would be achieved by their position. So they clamored for the best seat in the room. They vied for the seat with the most honor, and they neglected the pitcher and the basin. Nobody had the humility to be the servant. They all were filled with pride and self-will and independence. See, these are like chains that hold us fast until the love of God breaks down our pride. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Now, Jesus was not about to make a weak move. What Jesus was about to do was to make a very strong move. Because he knew that in their midst, there was one whose name was Judas, who had not received the love of God, who loved money more than God, who was ready to betray him. Now, over the years, when I've talked to people, the greatest injury they've ever received in their entire lives is a betrayal. That someone in whom you put your trust betrayed a confidence who broke that trust in your life. It's a deep wound upon your heart. So Jesus here in the upper room, you understand, is about to be wounded by Judas. The disciples here were luxurating, if you will, in service, being served. I've wondered many times if the women didn't serve the men. It doesn't say they served them at the door, didn't serve each other. I wonder if the women were serving the men. They were kind of sitting around the table like kings, arguing who's the greatest. And Jesus got up from the meal, and he took off his outer garment, and he took the position of a servant. He did what none of them were willing to do. In his humility, he began to serve. He poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel around his waist. We have to stand in awe of a God who, though deserved to be served, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Would you expect the CEO of a company to make the coffee for his employees or make the Starbucks run? Would you expect if you were having tea with Queen Elizabeth, imagine, tea with Queen Elizabeth, and she were to serve you the tea and pour it into your cup, would you expect the greater to serve the lesser? Would you expect the King of kings and the Lord of lords to serve us? And this is where an interesting dialogue begins between Jesus and Peter. It occurs in verse number six. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Now, the emphasis in the text is upon you understanding who you are and me understanding who I am. And don't you love Peter? Because Peter says what we all want to say or wish we said. You see, Peter raises an objection. You see, foot washing wasn't simply washing off the dirt and the mud that came from walking through the streets. In that day, there were open sewers. And there were animals like dogs running loose through the streets. Foot washing could have included 
washing the remains of human excrement and animal waste. You see, when Jesus sees a human being, he sees the real person beneath, underneath, beneath that layer of dirt. I mean, never before in the history of leadership had a leader stooped down in humility like this to serve. No centurion had ever washed his soldiers' feet. No rabbi had ever washed his students' feet. No husband would ever dare wash his wife's feet. And so Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Emphasis on my feet. And Jesus replied, you do not understand now what I am doing. But later you will understand. And now Peter raises a mighty objection. Here's Peter trying to give directions to Jesus. No, Peter, um, Jesus, you shall never, ever in a million years wash my feet. You see, Peter knew what he had stepped into. Peter knew the filth, the dirt of his own feet. Peter knew that Jesus was pure and undefiled. Lord, you will never, ever, in a million years, ever wash my feet. Now, here's where Jesus lovingly gives to Peter, his disciple, a rebuke. He says, unless I wash you, Peter, you have no part with me. You see, unless I wash you, Peter, you have no partnership with me. Unless I wash you, Peter, you have no fellowship with me. What breaks our fellowship with God, our communion, our closeness, is sin in our life. Peter then said, okay, if that's the deal, that I have to be washed, give me the whole bath. Wash my head, wash my hands, wash my entire body. Jesus was trying to convey to Peter the love of God. Jesus then answered, a person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet. What was Jesus saying? In verse number 10, Jesus refers to a person having had a bath needing only to wash his feet. It was customary for people to go to common baths, and there they would bathe their entire bodies. However, as soon as they left the bath, they would walk along the streets in this world and their feet would get dirty again. So when they got home, it wasn't necessary to have another complete bath. They only needed their feet washed off the dust and dirt and grime they picked up along the way. They would be meted there at the door by the servant who would wash their feet. What he's saying is that in order to have a relationship with God, you need to have a bath. You need a bath. When we get a bath, we get clean. All our sin, our small to us, medium, large sin, our past, our present, our future sin, gets washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. We need to go to that cross. We need the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sins? There's nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
There is a fountain drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath the flood. They lose all their guilty stains. We need to come to Redemption's Hill where Jesus' blood was spilled. We need to be cleansed. Now, as a culture, we have redefined sin. We call sins by all different kinds of names. We call lying exaggeration. We call unbelief worry. We call stealing someone's reputation gossip. We call murder the right to choose. We call fornication safe sex. We call homosexuality gay or lesbian. We call greed ambition. And we call lust adult entertainment. You see, the fact is that all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus was the manifestation of the glory of God. And he came to lay his life down that we might be cleaned, that we might have a bath. We might be able to say, I am cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But once we've been cleansed, still our feet get dirty by walking through this world we acquire attitudes. We do stuff that's wrong. And we need somebody who's going to be willing to wash our feet. We need someone who's going to be a servant to us to point out to us that we have sinned. But there is a cleansing available for us. Now, I'd like you to do something with me, okay? I'd like you to close your eyes. And I'd like you to clasp your hands together, just like this. Put your hands together. Father, here we are in your presence. And we know that Jesus came to his disciples, stooping himself down, taking off his outer garment, wrapping a towel around his waist, kneeling to wash their feet that had become dirty. Father, we are as the disciples are, and our feet are dirty. Now, I want you to use your imagination. You may put yourself back in that upper room with the disciples. You may find yourself in a chair, somebody, someplace comfortable where you spend some time. And I want you to see Jesus coming to you and taking off your shoe. I want you to see Jesus washing that foot of yours, those feet of yours, looking you lovingly in the eye, taking off your shoe, putting that foot inside the water, and bathing it and washing it and cleansing you. I want him to see you take that foot out of the basin and him drying that foot of yours, and giving you a big hug and saying, I love you. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to wash our feet. Amen. When we sin, we need to learn to confess our sins, to enter into agreement with God. Because if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And then Jesus gives an explanation for this, what is happening in verse number 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes again and returned to his place and said, do you, re do you understand what I have done for you? Do you understand? Do you get it? And you call me something. You call me teacher and Lord. You see, a teacher was a rabbi. And many of the teachers of that day quoted the authorities. Jesus was the authority. Jesus was the greatest teacher. And Jesus is the Lord. Now, when you call somebody Lord, that is the highest authority. Above Jesus, there is no other. Jesus said, you call me teacher and Lord, and that is what I am. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Jesus was saying, I have done something to you, but I want you to do something to one another. I want you with humility inside your heart. I want you to humble yourself, and I want you to serve one another. By the grace that God has given to you, I want you to take on the role of being a servant. You see, for Jesus, there was no task that was beneath him. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what task do we see is beneath us? What task are we unwilling to do? Are we willing to humble ourselves and be servants, even as Jesus was a servant? I was told this story of a man who went to various places like Dunkin' Donuts, and he said to the proprietor, the owner, he said, I would like to surf. How can I surf? And the owner of this one establishment said, you can clean the bathrooms. He hadn't quite prepared to do that. Because he had been to the bathroom, the bathroom wasn't looking all that great. He said, I'll, I'll clean one of your bathrooms. But the owner said, no, I'd like you to clean both of the bathrooms. The man said, I will. So he went into the bathroom with his little kit, and he scrubbed the toilets and cleaned the sink, and he came out. And the owner of the establishment said, you are a Christian, aren't you? He said, yes, I am. He said, in my religion, Hindu, in the caste system, no one would ever humble themselves to serve. But you have come to my store to serve me. Therefore, I know you're a Christian. You see, service is what Jesus taught us to do, to serve one another, to be willing to serve one another. Every person in that room knew that washing feet was beneath them. But Jesus, with joy in his heart, took off his outer garment and poured water into that basin and placed their feet into the basin. He's saying that now that I am your Lord and your teacher, this is what I have done unto you. You also should wash one another's feet. You should serve one another with humility. So what job is beneath your dignity? Cleaning the bathrooms around the house? Washing up those dirty dishes? Changing one of those diapers? What is it that is beneath your dignity? What are you unwilling to, to do to serve? You see, 
this will revolutionize the church. This will revolutionize your family. This will revolutionize our community. If we will say, I am your servant, I am willing to serve, how do you want me to serve? How do you want me to serve the people I live beside? How do you want me to serve the people I work with? How do you want me to serve my community? What is my assignment? How can I help? That's the question of a servant. How can I help? And the second question of a servant is, what else can I do to help? You know, I was reading this text. It was early on a Wednesday morning. And uh, the Spirit of God began to speak to me because Debbie had been speaking about this floor that had all this traffic had tracked in salt from outside. And it was about six in the morning. And I decided to get the mop out and begin to mop, mop the floor. <laughs> My devotions for that morning were washing the kitchen floor. And Debbie comes downstairs and said, what happened? And I said, I was doing my devotions, and God began to speak to me about that floor. And so I began to wash the floor, trying to be obedient to the prompting of God's Spirit inside of me. You see, a servant says, how can I help? What can I do? What can I do to serve? There was a mission trip down to Jamaica, and uh, a little girl was on board. She was a high-profile person. If I said her name, you'd recognize her last name. And so they came down to Jamaica, and they were in this center block house to live, and it hadn't been cleaned for a long time. And there were an outhouse behind the place where they're going to be staying. And let me just say the stench was sort of unbearable. And now all 35 kids on the trip had their eyes focused on that leader, like, what's the next move? And he said, who's willing to serve? Who's willing to help me clean up that outhouse? And the little girl raised her hand and said, I will. And together, they went out to that outhouse and they cleaned it in the name of Jesus. What I'm trying to say to you is, Jesus was giving us an example. And then he explained to us that greatness in his kingdom is not measured by position. Greatness in his kingdom is measured by our willingness to serve. And then he says in verse 17, Now if you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Not if you think about them. Not if you plan to do them. Not if you intend to be a servant. But if you do them. right? If you do these things. So I'm going to make an unconditional promise unto you. And you tell me if it works for you or not. I want you to offer love to somebody with no expectation of them loving you back. I want you to find somebody to love and to serve this week. It may be a poor person. It may be an elderly person. It may be a neighbor. I want you to love them in Jesus' name and to serve them and see if God doesn't pour joy into your life. You see, the untold secret of the Christian life is that when we obey Jesus, and we choose to serve the children, or choose to serve the students, or choose to serve a young mom. You know, somebody's going to need your help. Somebody's in their ninth month of pregnancy. And Debbie tells me that no mother in the history of motherhood has ever enjoyed her ninth month. 
And God's going to allow you to see that mom who needs some help and come alongside of her and love her in Jesus' name. I was walking through the neighborhood, and there was this little kid, and he was just kind of lost. And he said, would you hold my hand? And I said, I'm not your daddy. I'm not your mommy. Where is your mommy and your daddy? And he said, they kind of live over there. I said, who do you belong to? And she told me the name. And I said, sure, I'll walk with you. Some little child is going to need your love. You see, the, <laughs> what Jesus would teach then is a new command, verse 34, a new command I give unto you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. Jesus sets this example to us of what it means to be a humble, lowly servant. And the disciples could not deny the fact that God who was high humbled himself and served them. And then he turns it around and said, if I served you, you should serve one another. You see, in the body of Christ, what it's all about is learning how to love and serve one another. Some of us came into this place with chains. We have walls built up around our heart where it's hard for us to be served. But we're passing through a phase in life right now where we really do need others' presence in our life. We need their love. Others of us are walking more in a full tank, and we've got a lot of love to share and to see some of those needs around us and to move intentionally in that person's life. You see, it takes humility to receive someone's love, and it takes humility to serve someone in the very name of Jesus Christ. But this morning, God wants to break loose in this house. And he wants us to identify ourselves as his servants, his disciples, willing to serve one another. Pray with me, would you please? So here we are, Lord, in your very presence. Many of us have carried shame into this place. It's like chains that have hindered us. But your love is greater than our shame. Because in our shame, we would conceal and hide. We would pretend something isn't true. We would look at our feet and say that they're already clean, when indeed they're dirty. And you're a God who comes to us and kneels before us and washes our feet. And then you call us into obedience to be willing to wash each other's feet to be so deeply involved in each other's lives that we bear our feet before one another, allowing them to be washed. And we love with such intensity and intentionality that we wash our brother, our sister's feet. You promise us a blessing. You say, if we do these things, we are blessed. And then you state the great commandment to love one another as we have been loved. God, would you fill us to the fullest measure with your love? Would you allow your love to penetrate our barriers and defenses and walls we have built up, not letting other people in? We crave community, Lord. We crave presence of others in our lives. God, give us the humility to let them in. 
And then, God, give us the humility to serve one another. God, this is our prayer, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Would you stand with us?